Welcome back, and Elliot's with us today. Am I usually not with us? No, I usually actually just have this robot that I made listen to everything you said in high school, and it just basically mimics how you talk. You're not that smart. I guess, how would you explain where I've been the next year? Drugs, Elliot. Drugs. Well, that was fun, I guess. Uh, We're the Poor Pearls Almanac. Welcome. Let's do this podcast thing. So today we're uh, diving into a lesser known part of indigenous history here in the U.S., the Adena. I'm pretty sure everything we talk about is lesser known parts of history. We're, uh, we're pretty niche. Niche is another way of saying these podcast topics are great to talk about to random strangers on public transit. Let's, let's dive into the Adena. The big question is really who were the Adena? They're considered a society that established various tribal institutions which are basically under this wide umbrella based on commonality, more so than like an actual group that organized together. They were located in the modern day area of like Southern Ohio and Northern Kentucky and expanded a little bit past that. And I'm actually really excited to talk about it because we get to look at one of my favorite things, which is forgotten domesticated species. Yeah. And for any of our non-patron listeners, uh, we did a prologue on this very subject and Andy got a little too excited. So if you want to hear what Andy sounds like excited, you should check that episode out. I mean, what's a little sumpweed between friends, really? Uh, like all drugs, I think it depends on how you take it. Okay, so before we get into the Adena, we have to- Go back in time? I know, I know. How far back this time? So we're not really going back in time. We need to frame up the conversation as part of basically a bigger picture. Now, the Adena were located in an area that falls under a very specific term, the Eastern Agricultural Complex. Basically, it was a major global hub of vast early plant domestication. The archaeological records suggest that humans were collecting plants from the wild in this area by at the earliest 6000 BC. In the 1970s, archaeologists started noticing there were differences between the seeds found in the remains of the pre-Columbus era settings and those that were growing in the wild. In this setting, within where the Native Americans had been living, the seeds were much larger than the ones in the wild. And not only this, the seeds were easier to extract from the shells or the husks. This was evidence that indigenous people were selectively breeding these plants to make them both more productive and accessible. Some weed being one of them. Yeah, and while a lot were basically lost when corn continued to travel further north, such as like marsh elder and giant ragweed and maygrass, as well as a bunch more, some are still with us today, like sunflowers and squash. Now, there's a lot of debate about the role that these plants played because there's such little evidence that exists. While domesticated, the seeds of these species were still small and compared to like hickories or acorns or hazels, which were much more often consumed, the caloric return per hour of labor was significantly lower. So I'm guessing that's why corn eventually took over? Yeah, basically, it does raise the question about where those domesticated species would be had corn not arrived. So probably similar to corn today, maybe not in flavor, but calories per hour of labor. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine if like we had a dozen crops that could be native and also with a huge diversity of like seeds, basically, that were all super calorically dense, the amount of food diversity we could have today? Yeah, probably the best value dollar menu ever, boy. So the point is that they were a lot of work for a not a lot of return. A traditional argument on the subject matter is that it was basically like a supplemental backup food that could fill in during years with low nut drops, and that it was basically for emergencies and occasionally extra caloric intake. Or maybe just for flavor diversity or a pairing with seasonal harvest. 
Sure. And despite all the research I've reviewed on the subject, the idea that maybe they just like liked having a different option was never really suggested. It doesn't always have to be about efficiency any more than any other food production we're involved with, right? We don't just eat two crops. It's hard to imagine others who came before us may have desired that full grocery store shelf look, even though it's all the same shit. Not only that, but having the foresight to do it could probably learn a few things from that, right? Yeah, there's a bunch of reasons to have a diversity of calorically dense foods. In some cases, as simple as trading, as well as just consumption. Yeah, and then what about the other side of it, on the growing side of it? You can't control the size of your harvest. There's things like blight and pestilence and harmful pests and natural events that all happen too. So why stick to one staple crop? Yeah, so the point is that the Adeno was basically in the center of the super important, globally speaking, Eastern agricultural complex where massive amounts of domestication took place. And through trade and all the other fun stuff that impacted the food system across the entire continent. So what exactly were they doing with these fun and exciting new crops? Is this a trick question? They're, they're eating them, right? Come on, bud. We can do better than that. Okay, sure. That's true. What, what I mean is how did they get involved with them? So chances are these were plants they found near like trees that they were harvesting from, and they probably selectively picked the ones with the thinnest shells and the largest seeds, which is basically what corn is. If you look at it, it looks kind of like a, a head of grain or something like that, because corn is just basically a mass of grass. The same way sunflowers are just basically a giant version of like a dandelion. Now, this episode is going to be a little bit different than the ones we've done in the past, and it's because I want to take some time to look at this domestication process and how that really played out into the community. And part of this is because there's very little evidence around the foodways of the Adena, and the Adena are most recognized for their unique funerary practices, which we're going to talk about a little bit. Do we get to talk about funerary practices? Because I want to talk about funerary practices. I just found this old doodle that my friend made back when I was in high school of like this like sky burial like person. And it's from like, it looks like the cover of a metal band that never happened, but it's pretty sweet. We were going to use it for some album art. Someday, buddy. Someday we'll start that metal band. Now, let's talk about some of the things that have been found. The first is that the wood used for burning based on like the charcoal records came from like a handful of trees, namely black locust, red mulberries, hickory, and oak. Now, what's common about all of these trees, Elliot? I know this one. They are coppicing. Good for coppicing. Yes. So hickory and oak make up about 70% of the charcoal found at a number of different sites. Now, why are we talking about trees used for burning? Because it tells us a bit about what was around them, since few species would be left that were basically unused. Okay, so is it the same sort of dynamic for the food remains in, in the ashes as well? Yeah, so we see things like shell remains from nuts, which were primarily hickory, acorns, black walnuts, butternut walnuts, and hazelnuts. That said, 90% of the shells found, especially in the older sites, came from hickory. Walnuts came in basically a significant second to make up the last couple percent was the, the hazelnuts and the acorn shells that were found. Now, of the seeds that were found, there were nine distinct families that were identified. There was that maygrass, goosefoot, erect knotweed, and sumpweed being the most recognized members of that EAC, the Eastern Agricultural Complex. Maygrass is particularly interesting because it's really considered to be out of its range in this area, which suggests that it was being intentionally planted. Not only was it being intentionally planted, but it actually made up about 60% of the burned remains, suggesting it was actually like a main seed for food. 
Of all the seeds found, EAC plants made up almost 80% of the identified seeds, as well as some weeds that we have no evidence that they were being domesticated, but were likely foraged. Okay, so you mentioned the Eastern Agricultural Complex. Would you mind breaking that down for me? Because I, I don't know what that is. And I, I'm assuming that there are plants that we still have today that came from that. But what, like, can you elaborate more on that? Yeah, so we've named a few, but ones that are most recognizable are like sunflower and lamb's quarters and even like pigsweed, which is actually only called pigsweed because people consider it an annoying weed today, even though it's basically a domestic version of quinoa. The plants are basically broken down into like, quote unquote, oily plants and quote unquote, starchy plants, which plants produce fats and which can be stored as flour. And then there's the squash, which didn't really have a palatable meat. But the shell was a really good storage vessel and the seeds were edible. In terms of like fruits, seeds from red mulberry and elderberry were found as well as pits from like an unidentified fruit. That's sad if we lost the fruit species. Do you think we lost the fruit species or could they just not tell if this seed came from fruit A or B? Yeah, I, I think we lost a fruit species. That's, that's really sad. I mean, maybe, maybe not. Actually, I have no idea. Yeah, I, I like to imagine the landscape had stuff that we don't get to enjoy today. So just assume as a white man that I'm making this up. That's the doomer in you. So are fruits considered part of the Eastern Agricultural Complex? Are there fruits in that complex that you mentioned earlier? So generally, fruits aren't considered part of the EAC, despite their prominent role in diets. While not discovered in these remains, things like pawpaws and persimmons were consumed and were likely managed and selectively bred, as well as like chestnuts, which we haven't talked about. How did we get that far into this episode and not mention chestnuts and them roasting over the fires that these fire beavers make? Its absence is honestly, you know, jarring. Yeah, I'm jarred by the fact that you didn't make some off-putting chestnut pun there. Sorry, we're talking about chestnuts this is like serious stuff. True. Hey there, it's me, Crazy Norm, down at Normal Norm's Nut Emporium on John Brown Drive. We're going nuts for nuts in Nutty November. We've got big nuts, small nuts, chestnuts, ground nuts, nut butter, buttery nuts, nut milk, milky nuts, nut cream, creamy nuts, and the further late night crowd, chocolate covered CBD, deep fried nuts. Want to join the nut extravaganza? Nut up and join the nut posse. Join other members and get your sack of nuts pounded for free whenever you come in and make the creamiest nut milk you've ever had in your own kitchen. Crazy Norm's Nut Emporium, 420 John Brown Drive or online at fourprolls.com. So let's talk about this transition from a predominantly hickory diet to like a seed-based diet. While the species that were harvested didn't seem to change too much over time prior to maize, what is really interesting to me is the transition throughout the woodland time periods of moving away from hickory. While, like I said, hickory made up like 90 to 95% of the nutshells throughout the early and middle woodlands, which is about 4,000 years ago, by the late woodlands, it had dropped to about 78%, and walnut and hazelnut actually made up most of the rest. Coincidentally, the percentage of seed material in the chart remains also jumped 50-fold from the early to late woodland period, 90% of that happening between the middle and late periods. So that's the same time as walnuts taking over. So like there's this clear change away from hickory for a reason we don't know. What all this means is that around like a thousand years ago, the diet significantly changed for the Adena from being primarily hickory based to basically like equal parts hickory to seed, mostly maygrass. 
analysis of pollen and charcoal records confirmed that there was a clear change in the forest composition around the same time period. Forests were cleared and fire tolerant species became better represented in pollen cores, while the pollen of fire intolerant species became pretty rare. What's interesting is that corn was actually introduced to this region around like 2000 years ago, a thousand years before the diets changed from hickory to seed, and corn clearly wasn't adoptable quite yet. Tropical corn doesn't flower under the long day conditions of like the summer north compared to like Mexico, requiring a lot of genetic adaptation. It seems that corn was adopted first as a supplement to existing local indigenous agricultural plants, but gradually came to dominate as its yields increased. But this process obviously took some time, and corn didn't become a staple of their diet for like another thousand years. Yeah, I think that was one of the interesting things um, when I was going over the episode and, and reading about this that really stood out to me as well, was that it takes about you know a thousand years for corn to migrate north a few hundred miles almost a thousand miles. That, that's a considerable amount of time. And I don't think, you know, I'm coming into gardening and growing things for myself for the first time. Nobody really thinks it's going to take a thousand years for their food to change. But if you're going to do it naturally and sustainably, that might be the time frame that you're working on without doing some sort of sciencey GMO type stuff, right? Yeah, especially when we're talking about bringing new crops into climates that they wouldn't naturally survive in. It's one thing that just like, selectively pick seeds to make bigger heads or whatever. It's another thing to take, like when we were talking about the Soviets with the tropical fruit trees, despite all their efforts, they really couldn't create a fruit tree that could handle their cold weather. So they had to change the environment around them, despite the fact that they had all the technology of the 50s and 60s, as opposed to like what indigenous people were doing with corn. So let's look at this interesting process of domestication and selective breeding, because it's really important in understanding the relationships between communities like the Adena and horticulture itself. For the domestication of these species to happen, a confluence of events had to take place. First, let's talk about place. This region is also known as a prairie peninsula, which is basically a prairie woodland mosaic that was maintained by anthropogenic fire starting as early as like 6,000 years ago. And being in a, a mountainous region, it's covered with rivers. So scholars have pointed out that many of these original plants that were domesticated were plants that thrived in disturbed soils in river valleys. In the aftermath of like a flood, in which most of the old vegetation is killed by the high waters and bare patches of new, often very fertile soil were created, these pioneer plants just spring up like magic, often growing in almost like pure stands, but then usually disappearing after a single season as well as when other vegetation pushes them out until the next flood. Now, Elliot, do you remember some of the main crop species we had talked about for riparian zones as well? Um, the one that you had mentioned earlier was black walnuts, I think? Yes. Am I right? And it's in I'm right. You, you are right. And you've passed the poor proles test. And it's interesting to see that we also see an increase in like black walnut cultivation during this transitional period, right? Yeah. Interesting indeed, but probably I don't think I'm thinking of the reason that you're thinking, so why don't you explain it? So walnut trees grow best on that well-drained but moist and deep bottomland soils that are also super fertile for these small seeds. Now, black walnut trees are relatively resistant to fire, and younger trees can re-sprout fairly quickly, like coppicing, after a burn. They also do well on disturbed sites, but not in closed forest canopies. And most importantly for what we're talking about, most grasses and herbaceous plants are pretty juggle intolerant. Grasses and herbaceous plants, you say? 
I feel like this is going to bring us around to something rather nutty about all these black walnuts. So drop that fact on me. Walnut is abundant near historically recorded indigenous villages, suggesting that they also do well in like an anthropogenic landscape. In short, black walnuts are late successional components of anthropogenic niches created by burning, likely found near riverbanks. So more anthropogenic fire, more fire beavers. I swear it sounds made up when we talk about hailing the fire beaver gods and they'll provide black walnuts out of sheer benevolence, but it's not made up. It's real. Now, how do we get to this place? If only we knew such a majestical place. But instead, we must continue our jaunter down the path in Kentucky. Excellent. So can we make bourbon out of black walnuts? Uh, There is a liquor you can make with black walnuts, actually. Um, This pleases me. I think the Italian is Nocino, and the English is Nocino. I'll drink the hell out of it. Bring it. Now I gotta look up how Americans pronounce it. Oh, they do call it Nocino. Look at that. Good job, Americans. Wait, that was an Italian website. (laughs) Oh, wow. No, it is... Americans pronounce it Nocino, but it should be Nocino. Goddamn Americans. I'm going to go with Nocino. It sounds better. Right? Yes, there is a liquor called Nocino that Black Walnut can make. So look at that. It provides everything you need. I'm happy. So five minutes ago, we had talked about the char remains that showed the transition from the nut-based diet to the seed-based. And during the period where hickories went down, but before the seeds took over, Black Walnuts were one of the main substitutes. Now, when it comes to the seeds themselves, the primary narrative that's been driven, that is basically the consensus right now, is that as people were gathering these seeds, they were continuously dropping them into the same area, and these seeds continued to sprout and thrive. Now, over time, they began to actually go out of their way to make sure that seeds were sown, and the ground was cleared of any competitive vegetation that they didn't want to waste their time growing. The seeds which germinated the quickest, which were usually the thinner coated seeds as we'll talk about in a moment, and the plants that grew the fastest were the most likely to be replanted instead of eaten. Now through this process of unconscious selection and later conscious selection, the domesticated weeds or as they were becoming domesticated weeds became more productive. The seeds of some species became substantially larger and oftentimes their seed coats were less thick than the wild plants. Conversely, when they stopped growing these plants selectively, as they did later, their seeds reverted within a few years to the thickness they had been in the wild when they had to compete with natural selection pressure. I don't fully buy that for a couple reasons. And that's because you can't be sold, you righteous fucker. Because I think it erases a very close relationship between the people who lived here and their lands, and it it just basically makes it a transactional affair. And we know that's never been the case. Further, we have new evidence which suggests there was even more at play to uh, domesticate these crops. So let's talk about these grasses and weeds a little bit more. When we talk about their role, they're considered most successful in those human-created early successional ecosystems or within like a disturbance, basically. And this begs the question of where did they occur before humans modified the ecosystem of eastern North America? Where would early Holocene foragers have encountered these types of plants? The only non-anthropogenic environments where large stands of lost crop progenitors have previously been seen is within floodplains. Now that's not a surprise based on what we've talked about. It's also been suggested that these domesticated plant populations became isolated from their wild relatives when people started removing these floodplain species from what you could call risky and unpredictable environments in which they had evolved and began to cultivate them in upland clearings using like fire. I guess that's the heat of the beaver fever, right? Yeah, I've got a fever and the only cure is more beaver. 
That's amazing. <laughs> what? Always been a pyro, and I think a beaver might be my spirit animal. I don't know, but maybe. We could unpack that, but let's, uh, let's dig a little deeper instead. Previous domestication theorists have focused on the relationship between the lost crops and floodplains because water is the most obvious force of disturbance within this area. What's often ignored, though, is the fact that large swaths... Swaths? Swaths. Swiths? Swaths. Swaths? Swaths. Uh, swaths. I'm, not, I'm just going to... We're going to keep all this. You're... T- you're of the, <laughs> wait, you really don't know how to say that word? No, I... Swaths? Swaths, yes. All right. I don't know why I just like blanked on it. What's ignored is that these large swaths of these riparian woodlands were covered in a prairie savanna forest mosaic throughout the Holocene. In recent years, bison have been reintroduced to uh, tall grass prairie remnants for the first time in over like a century. And some really interesting findings have come out about it. There's no way I can be the only one that remembers it was a few years back. Bison burgers came back on the scene and people were like, oh, it's it's not a hamburger. It's a bison burger. It's still a hamburger. Come on. It's but they are damn good. I'm not going to lie. Bison burgers are pretty good. They're pretty good. They're probably one of my favorite burgers. Next time before we record or maybe after. We should get bison burgers, because I don't think anybody wants to hear me digest the third pound of American bison. No one needs to hear that. I mean, I need to hear that, and I need to like hear that freedom come out of your intestines. Okay, so we'll do it before the episode, and I'll tape a microphone to my belly. Oh, yeah. So while it might seem weird, recent research has actually shown that bison were also present in this prairie peninsula throughout the Holocene. Like rivers and humans, bison create early successional habitats for like annual forbs and grasses, including those progenitors of the eastern North American crops within these tall grass prairies. Fieldwork has shown that crop progenitors are focal members of plant communities along these bison trails and in the wallows. Now, some researchers, and again, this is just in the past few years, argue that ancient foragers that were also hunting bison, encountered these dense, easily harvestable stands of crop progenitors as they have moved along the bison trails, and that ecosystems created by bison and anthropogenic fire, as well as the floodplains, all served as a template for this later agro-ecosystem of the region. So how did they do this experiment? So basically, they just followed bison in Oklahoma, and everywhere they went, like, little barley and maygrass started popping up, and the lands around them didn't with lots growing in like their dung or where they had laid. Science is weird because I'm picturing like a scientist in a lab coat walking behind like a bison drive with a clipboard saying, I don't believe this shit. Yeah, if somebody had told me that's what science was when I was in high school, maybe I would have not been a useless sack of shit in high school. I would have done it. (laughs) That would have been awesome. Be like, you can follow bison around and get paid. Hey there, it's Andy from the Poor Poles Almanac, and... And we're not the Poor Poles Almanac. You're right. We are tomorrow, today. And I'm Nash Flynn from Death and Friends. Tomorrow, today is our chance to talk to folks about cutting-edge research that helps us understand what tomorrow looks like, but today. We've got exciting guests. And we'll speculate wildly about what the future looks like. Will the ocean currents slow down in your lifetime, leaving temperate climates decimated? Will we go to Mars? Will we drown in climate-induced ocean floods filled with microplastics? Will new research rewrite the history our children read? Will the sun... Is this going to be another Doomer question? No. Tomorrow, today, wherever you get your podcasts and also on Instagram. All right. To get back to what we're supposed to be talking about, 
there's basically the two entry points for the Eastern Agricultural Complex's development and what led to the first major example of plant domestication here in what's now the United States. Now, I want to quickly talk about the process of domestication because I think it's an important thing to understand. And then I want to talk about how this impacted the society. And then we're going to talk a little bit about how the society was organized, which I think is also really important. So you do remind me of a couple of my college professors because we're halfway, maybe two thirds of the way through this episode. And you've said you quickly want to talk about something three times and it's going to be on the test, but you're not going to tell us in this fucking episode, are you? So what is it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the those years of teaching college English, I guess, are coming out. So I'll be quick. I'll be shocked. Erect knotweed is the plant that I want to talk about. Not because it has a fantastic name, but because it was estimated to be domesticated between like the year 700 and 1000. Now, erect knotweed was cultivated primarily for its edible seeds. But what's really interesting is the seeds themselves. They produce seeds that are encased in this really hard fruit coating. Now, if anyone's ever collected like honey locust seeds or black locust seeds or any other like tree seeds that have like a really hard shell, you know what that coat feels like. What's unique about erect knotweed is that it has seasonally controlled fruit dimorphism, which is just a fancy way of saying that it produces two distinct fruit types or seed types. The two morphs, the two different seed types are called smooth and rough with reference to the surface texture of their fruit coat. Okay, so there's two different fruits and two different seeds that come from the same plant that all, they're all the same thing. But the change from the seed and the fruit depends on the season. And basically the difference is whether the seed is rough or smooth. Did I get that? Yeah, so during the summer and early fall, plants produce only the rough morphs. And beginning in like mid-September, plants begin to produce both rough and smooth morphs. Why does this matter? The only functional difference between them is that the smooth morphs have a thinner, less water-resistant fruit coat and will germinate immediately in the spring after they're produced, whereas the rough morphs can survive in the seed bank for like 18 months. So they basically have like a short-term seed for the next year and the next growing season, and then they have like an emergency seed, a backup seed, just in case adverse conditions come through, like a flood or any, any fire, anything. Yeah, that's the evolutionary plan, at least. Now, with erect knotweed, we have a plant that naturally produces a fruit type that already has like one of those key characteristics of like a domesticated seed crop, and that's the thinner fruit coats. Human selection was brought in to bear on this natural variation during the process of domestication. Okay, so you can see some traits might be more desirable than others, but where does it go from there? If we look at the domesticated knotweed, we can see how it's different. There's mainly two things that are different here. Its seeds are larger, and the rough morphs are either reduced or eliminated in favor of just the smooth morphs. Okay, so we got bigger seeds, and the seeds with the thicker shells are less common or non-existent at this point. Exactly. The selective pressures that might have led to these changes changes when they're under cultivation. To summarize, the domesticated erect knotweed is probably the results of both active human selection and basically the relaxation of those selection pressures when it's put into like a human-mediated ecosystem. So it's like a chihuahua, like where you've relaxed those pressures that demand a bigger dog. You don't eat chihuahuas? I'm not going to say anything about chihuahuas. Wow. I know people love them. I can't stand them. No. I met one, no, two chihuahuas in my life that I could stand. Every time I look at them, I think about like what the angle is that I could get my foot under it for like the perfect kick. That was one, all right, one of the chihuahuas I met, it wouldn't let you pet. Please, 
Please tell me you punted it. No, it wouldn't let you pet her. The way you had to pet her, you had to use your foot. So you had to sit down <laughs> and put your foot out, and she would come over and let you, like, rub her chest. But if you, like, reached for her, she thought you were going to pick her up, and she hated it. <laughs> so you had, to rub, you had to rub this chihuahua with her foot. Her name is Zini. Oh, she's, my God. She's the cutest dog ever. Uh, I, I, if you say so. You got to see a picture of this thing. It's hideous, <laughs> but she's sweet. I love it. Yeah, we're, we're going to move on from chihuahuas. How do the plants develop in this way? So they have this characteristic called plasticity, which allows them to have basically a wide scope of traits that come out depending on their very specific environment. A super simple example of this is like how trees grow. If you have like a bunch of trees you're planting densely, like when we're coppicing, they can be trained to grow super tall with few branches versus like a short and wide tree that might be like out in the middle of a field. And that's completely dependent on the environment they're in. Yeah. So to be fair, we're talking about genetic plasticity. The plants themselves aren't plasticky. Just wanted to make that note there. This is not Whoville. There's no plastic trees. Right. Or Radiohead. Could you imagine how scary it would be if plants could move themselves out of the ground like ant people, like from fucking Lord of the Rings? Or Plants vs. Zombies. Is that a video game? I don't know. It's a phone game. I'm hip, Elliot. I'm hip. All right. I know a video game. I knew what you were talking about, I think. I just don't think I played it. That's like a farmer video game. You would love it. You're right. They they can express very specific things based on the right conditions. Like the other plants of the EAC, erect knotweed came from the floodplains, that same riparian zone where like black walnuts thrived. As people moved away from these floodplains because they were unpredictable like 2000 years ago, and we don't actually know 100% the reason, but that's basically been the thought process, erect knotweed came with them along with a bunch of other plants. Plants in new environments will basically like explore these new traits. But let's focus in on that fruiting process, having like two types of seeds, a short term and a long term. This is basically like we talked about a form of like evolutionary bet hedging. Organisms like this that do this basically show strategies that don't maximize the survival of their offspring within like a single generation, but instead tend to produce like a variation in survival rates through many generations. Yeah, so naturally plants came up with a Pretty much a contingency plan for fire beaver gods showing up and clearing everything with fire and flame or floods. And they got a seed for every occasion. Yeah, and then they got these sweet patches that we make called the Poor Pearls Fire Starters Patch. If you guys like patches, I'm I'm not good at sales. Sorry, <laughs> I, I don't know how to do this. Shameless plug. If you like fire beavers and you like having patches on your clothes, we have patches of fire beavers. So put your clothes with your favorite item, which is a fire beaver, and uh, hit us up on poorprolls.com. It's going to be great when people ask you on public transit what your patch means and you get to explain it to them. Exactly. Like, make everyone super uncomfortable with your love of nature. It's a fucking meme, IRL. Do it. <laughs> now, in the case of the erect knotweed, most of the rough-coated seeds don't germinate in the spring after they're produced, which means they're subject to like an entire year of like predation and pathogen risks and all of those other fun things before they germinate. And even once they do germinate, they grow more slowly than the seedlings that sprung from the smooth morphs, meaning that they're less competitive, especially when there's like a dozen other species trying to compete for like light and space. In short, a mother plant that uses resources producing these rough morphs that could otherwise be used to produce smooth morphs isn't really maximizing its fitness for like the next generation. So why has the production of these rough morphs evolved and how is it maintained? Um, maybe it has to do with that gene plasticity we talked about. Like they need to keep those traits 
like in the mix for genetic variation? I have no idea. You know, when you said gene plasticity, all now I can think of is like some old dude named Gene that's done a lot of like Botox. Yeah, the dude from Kiss. <laughs> you just described gene him to plasticity. a plasticity. Yeah. Oh my God. We've just ruined a lot of people's day. Nailed it. Um, in order for this protective process, this evolutionary bet hedging to be eliminated under cultivation, there's been research done, particularly Dr. Mueller, who suggests that by protecting these populations from these effects of unpredictable flooding, both by creating clearings for erect knotweed seedlings and like these micro topographic zones that are uplands that rarely or never get flooded, and by basically storing seed stock, which provided an alternative to the seed bank, they were able to like reduce the stress the plant went through and this repeated reduction of this stress and careful seed selection basically helped domesticate the crops within like possibly even a couple hundred years or even shorter. We, we don't know. So instead of a thousand years, they were able to speed it up to a few hundred years, which is pretty quick without, I don't know, being a- Well, yeah, compared to corn, um, you know, you have to remember corn, uh, it's much different to show that plant elasticity versus like- trying to selectively breed for conditions that aren't in any way natural. Right. Whereas we're just like regulating the nature with this domestication process. So there's like two different types of domestication we're looking at at corn versus like the erect knotweed. Gotcha. So they left the floodplains, but they recreated spaces that were similar conditions to the where they had just taken the plant from without risking an actual flood ruining like the crop or the seeds or the genetics that they're trying to propagate. Yeah, it's like they made a simulated world for these plants, basically. And to, to help accelerate like the seasonal cycling of the nutrients from collecting the seeds and having the grasses still there, they would do things like burn that stubble from the previous harvest, like, and that would cycle that nutrient back into the soil again. So these farmers were setting fires and probably having parties, right? Probably. I mean, if they're doing a fall burn, it's like that uh, fall harvest party. That's got to be so much fun. I don't know about the mushrooms. All yeah. your all your hard work at the end of the year, though, like if you're not partying after you're done harvesting, like what are you doing? Right. What's the point of living? Seriously. Yeah. So anyways, these uh, to successfully farm at this scale really requires a community. Despite it seeming that they would need to settle in like one place, the Adena appear, at least from our records, to have instead remained mobile. And this is probably partly due to the success in hunting and gathering activities, probably like hunting bison. Further, there's evidence in a sense of long-term investment in the region based on like the monuments made. So despite traveling, there was still showing sense of place. Now these monumental earthen burial mounds and geometric ditch and embankment enclosures symbolize a, a shift in the way that people valued the landscape, engaging in things like communal labor to build these things which signified their bonds to both the land and to one another. Yeah, so they were basically building giant hills filled with bodies, but they weren't just graves, they were monuments as well. Yeah, something like that. These practices basically unified these separate communities with common beliefs and lifestyles into basically an organizational like matrix or lattice, where labor and ritual practices were fused to produce these monumental earthen constructions also in the process held these elaborate mortuary remains, some of which appear to be aligned with like astronomical movements. What we do know is that these communities have left basically no evidence of a hierarchy in how their communities were organized, no evidence of things like chiefs or any other structured formal governance. 
the most recent research suggests that complex interrelations through like kinship actually force communities to have an investment in the success of one another, while also helping reduce risks of like a power vacuum within the community. By examining the role of kinship in these coalitions, we can take a look at the processes through which situational leadership and influence were organized in a heterarchical manner. Heterarchical. That's a big word. Let's break that down. Yeah, so the concept of heterarchy is an interesting one if you're not familiar with it. Basically, it's the concept that while all individuals in a community are equal and capable of taking any role in the community, temporary leadership is given or gained based on like skills and unique circumstances. So like Sparta, but like from the 300 movie. Uh, maybe. I don't remember that. Yeah, I know you didn't see that fucking movie. You never watch any I, movies. I did see it. I just don't remember that. I also saw it like 20 years ago. <laughs> so, so like say when there's a global pandemic, maybe leadership should be uniquely skilled for that pandemic. Wait, we are talking about burials. This is the funerary part. Yeah, we are. Look at that. We made it, buddy. I fucking missed I it. I haven't, I haven't been paying attention at all, I guess. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> uh, yeah, kind of like that. Uh, in this process, there's no permanent powers given. And the goal is basically that people or groups given that temporary authority based on those conditions have this power under, like, tension. That it's clear the power is temporary and expectations within the community are for that power to be given up as soon as possible. So nobody can use that opportunity to hold power indefinitely. How groups created and managed this dissonance helps us understand the processes through which temporary coalitions could be understood to form, operate, and be abandoned, and can help us envision how positions of leadership and authority ebbed and flowed across these groups and individuals, as well as through time. So it sounds like they settled the, uh, most of their disputes with the ancient way of rocks, paper, scissors. Basically, like everyone had power over one another, but in the process of everyone having power, no one has power. There's no one that's better, even though each has power. To circle back to the Adena, remains from burial mounds suggest that individuals frequently had children with people in the communities around them. And this linked these two regions together, not through these massive regional ritual practices and ideological beliefs, but also through these familial relations. And the burials were a key component of organizing and supporting the system of heterarchy. Ah, yes. Extended families and death. One of those is the cornerstone, if not both, to all traditions and holidays everywhere. And guilt. Yeah, you can have that one. My people thrive on guilt. It's called white guilt. We even named it. I thought it was just called Catholicism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we've got these individuals who occasionally assumed these temporary leadership roles. Their actions and levels of success would have been assessed by others and leading to real-time evaluations of their accountability to the group to perform these important roles like, say, organizing hunts or ritual ceremonies or whatever. An individual's worth to the group would have increased as positive accountability was sustained over their lifetime. The temporary and situational status positions of worthy individuals, therefore, could be translated into, like, those forms of memorialization, such as being included in those monumental burials or material wealth. Okay, so that sounds like they had a variety of sort of checks and balances to keep power from accumulating, as well as like a scoring rubric for who's doing a good job and should probably be in control of certain things. Yeah, there was this understanding that there's a final payoff individually for uh, recognizing your place and your limitation within the society. There's a solid amount of research at this point, at least, suggesting that this is how the community's organized when these burial monuments were constructed. Under these circumstances, 
agreement to comply with a worthy individual and their allies will be situationally dependent, leading to a complex and overlapping network of shifting power and influence throughout time. The temporary and shifting forms of leadership positions that are the hallmark of hierarchical organizations are visible in the archaeological record through the different ways that groups come together to memorialize certain individuals during those communal mound constructions. So what came first, the hierarchical organization or the mound? Here's the thing. The mound monuments have existed in the United States for at least 7,000 years. In this region, though, as far as I could find, no mounds existed before 2,000 years ago or so. Okay, so these mounds existed for thousands of years in, in this region before domestication. So the Adena had organized like this before that domestication occurred. Yeah, so we don't really know how the domestication of crops impacted how this organization operated. But based on the continuation of the mounds through the domestication process and the inclusion of seeds in the burial practices of the mounds, these crops were valued. Although to be fair, the harvesting of these crops was occurring, but not at that scale of the later years. It raises the old questions when people talk about like rewilding a landscape. What is the original point? Does the collapse of a society like as the Adena basically disappeared suggest that it wasn't worth recognizing the good and isn't necessary for good things to last forever in order to be good or to be proof of like success? I don't know, man. When I got married, they said a diamond was forever. It's just a really expensive rock. I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's really, I think, a really important question. And it doesn't mean there's an answer necessarily, but we have to think about if we're going to be doing these things or we're going to be talking about these different landscape management practices, the fact that they're, you know, even, even if they were abandoned before in pre-Columbian times, does that mean they're necessarily good or bad because they were abandoned? You know, if we think about it in terms of linearity, we understand that times change and with that change comes evolution that meets the new conditions, whether that's within the community or ecologically. You know, I, I don't have an answer for that, but I, I think it's something that we have to think about and recognize that what we're talking about across this whole series is not a, a framework in the sense of we need to do this thing. But basically, hey, this is a way that people have lived for thousands of years. Unless you think America is going to live how it exists today for thousands of years, then maybe we should take some notes. Don't change a thing. Stay the course. Drive that. See that iceberg? Just fucking Every, go straight into it. Everything's fine. You can only drive. Everything is fine. There is a finite amount of nails you can fit into one coffin. <laughs> it's got to end at some point, everybody. We're fine. It's fine. We Humans will continue to exist, whether or not in this form or this this scale or whatever. We, we might be living in huts again someday, but that is uh, regardless of how we handle the shit show that we've got today. Even if we live in a hut, y you, me, your, your whole family, my extended family, it'll still be bigger than my first apartment. <laughs> my first apartment was literally like, literally, it was a closet. It was yeah. awesome. <laughs> three, three, I think it was 325 square feet. Oh, mine was like a room that was like, it was like the closet off the living room. That was like a pantry closet, basically. It was like six feet by eight feet. I don't think I could fit. A, no, I couldn't fit a bed in it. It's messed up. Yeah, it was small. So that's when you, <laughs> that's when you learn to sleep upside down. You were doing the bat hang because you couldn't fall asleep in his apartment. <laughs> so he just hang upside down till he passed out. Yeah, pretty much. And when you hit the ground, you don't even feel it. It's great. You don't fall. <laughs> you literally yeah. can't hit the ground. You just lean like a broom closet. 
like a broom in a broom closet. <laughs> just fold up. Yep. That's it. Oh man. We've we've come so far, bro. Proud of you. We have. Thank you, America. I've <laughs> I am so successful. Uh so yeah, that that is um basically the the stuff I wanted to talk about in this episode. Uh, it's a really interesting area and there's a lot of uh, very modern research going or very contemporary research, I'll say, going into a lot of this stuff, which is really cool. So I'm, I'll be interested to look back at this episode in five years and see how much has changed about what we thought we knew about these practices. I bet you're going to be disappointed. I'm going to look back and be like, you were, you stupid child. Shouting into the <laughs> void. Nobody's yeah. listening to this. Sh- uh, so that is it. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode. We have a fantastic interview coming up next week. And my name is Andy and this is Elliot. And this is the Poor Pearls Almanac. Almanac.